On March 4th, uh, we began a series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses, which is an exposition of the book of Acts. Last week, we began with chapter 6. We kind of got through five chapters, and we started with chapter 6. I'm not hearing any applause, because some of you were so stoked about that last week. Maybe it's a whole different group of people here that are this week. Um, we looked at verses 1 to 7. Uh, while together we, and I'm going to give you a little context so we can keep moving, but while together we learned that a major problem arose in the early church between the Hellenistic Christians um, and the Hebrew Christians. It's funny, right? Early church, you've got different groups of Christians in the church already. You've got the Hellenistic type, and you've got, it's like denominations already, right? It's already happening there. So you had the Hebrews and the, uh, the Hellenists, and there was a problem between them. The Hellenists thought that there were widows, or thought that their widows were being deliberately left out of the daily distribution of food and supplies, and they thought the Hebrews were deliberately leaving some of their widows out. Uh, we learned that there were a lot of widows in the area because of tradition and things like that, but these Hellenists were pretty fired up because they felt like, man, some of our widows, some of our gals who no longer have husbands, they're, they're twisted, and we believe it's the Hebrews that are mistreating them and not taking care of them. And there was this great rivalry between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hellenists essentially were Jews who spoke Greek, and they were from basically foreign lands, and, and uh, the Hebrews were the local Jews. And so there was a big-time rivalry between them, but there was this complaint that went out that, man, you know, some of our widows are being mistreated, and, and it's wrong. They went and these Hellenists went and they complained to the apostles and asked if the apostles would basically take over the responsibility, make it fair. You know, you guys are already in charge of sort of distributing these things. You're, you're receiving them and then giving them to others to, to, to put out there and to distribute. Could you take over all of it and, and make that your responsibility so that it's fair? They knew that the apostles were, were extremely fair, but the apostles refused because they did not want to be pulled away from preaching the gospel. Um, that was their primary responsibility, was to keep preaching the gospel, keep preaching the gospel. And so they refused and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay devoted to, uh, like to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Those are the things that we have to do, so we can't go do this for you. Um, they did, however, instruct the Hellenists to find seven men from their own ranks, uh, that they could take these seven men and uh, basically anoint them and appoint them to be deacons or overseers over the ministry. So the apostles refused to do it themselves, but they didn't leave the Hellenist hanging. They went and took action and said, go pick out guys who have impeccable qualities and character and all these things from your own ranks, and, and we'll uh, you know, appoint and anoint them, anoint and appoint them, and we'll get the thing rolling for you, and they'll take care of the job for you. And so the Hellenists picked their guys, and one of them, they had seven guys, one of them was a guy by the name of Stephen. Stephen was an exemplary man of God who possessed the necessary qualities required for a deacon. Uh, many of us know Stephen uh, to be the first Christian martyr. He was the first Christian to be executed uh, for believing and following Jesus. So many of us know him uh, according to that fact and reality. And, and that's a truism. That is absolutely who he is. That is rightfully so. But there is much more to him uh, than that. His ministry, the ministry that he oversaw, uh, the way that he handled the gospel and, and dealt with the gospel and ministered to people, his ministry was literally the catalyst that catapulted the church out of Jerusalem into the rest of the world. Sounds pretty big, doesn't it? That's really where it began. God's ministry to the Gentiles basically came through Stephen's ministry. And so he's much more than just the first Christian martyr. His ministry was used by God in an incredible way, not to mention that he had this impeccable character. I mean, this guy was amazing. Now, up till now, uh, in the church and in the narrative that we've been studying in Acts, up till now, Peter has been the dominant figure. 
Okay, he has been the dominating figure or leader person in the Acts narrative of the early church. It's all been Peter, and Peter did this, and Peter did that. And yes, the apostles were included in that, but Peter was pretty much their primary spokesperson. He was the apostles' overseer and leader and beyond. So it's all been Peter, Peter, Peter up till now. I haven't gotten tired of hearing about Peter. Peter was a good man. But it's been all about Peter, and quite frankly, it's been all about Jerusalem. Peter and Jerusalem. Everything was happening in Jerusalem. The gospel was being preached in Solomon's portico, which was in the temple, which was where? In Jerusalem. It's all been Peter. It's all been Jerusalem. But our text, the text that we're going to study today, shows a shift in the direction of the church and a shift in the storyline. The storyline jumps off of Peter. Okay? It jumps off of Peter. It jumps off of Jerusalem onto Stephen and his ministry to the Hellenists, or foreign Jews or Greek-speaking Jews. The storyline continues to shift. It then um, highlights Stephen's arrest, trial, sermon, and martyrdom. And then from there, the story shifts to church-wide persecution, which leads to the conversion of the greatest Christian minister to ever live. And his name was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul then took the gospel to the rest of the world, to the Gentile world, to the Roman Empire, which is essentially the Gentile world in those days. And so I'm kind of sad because it's been really cool to study the early church the way we have and to be looking at Peter and the apostles and the ministry and the temple and all that. Those days are going to be behind us now. And there'll be a few more mentionings of of Peter in the future, but for the most part, man, Paul is about to take center stage. But before we get to Paul, we look at Stephen. So in a way, you have Peter and the Jews of Jerusalem on one side. You have Stephen and the Hellenists in the middle. And then Paul and the Gentiles of the Roman Empire on the other side. The first nine chapters of Acts show us God's strategy and process for evangelizing the world. The gospel was first presented to full Jews, then it was presented to half-Jews, so to speak, the Hellenists, and then to non-Jews, Gentiles. It's amazing, this order that God has here with it being proclaimed right there in Jerusalem to really the true Jews and then to the Jews who were far off. And man, we would, we could, it's safe to say that they were almost like half-Jews in a way because they were very Greek. And then Paul takes it all the way to the non-Jews. So it's Jews, half-Jews, non-Jews. And along the way, God used three key men to lead and oversee this incredible evangelistic task. And they are Peter, Stephen, and Paul. Amazing. Now let's focus on our text, draw out more details about Stephen, which will help us to better study uh, the following chapters of Acts, especially chapter 7, which is all about Stephen's sermon. I'm going to be reading from 6, 8 to 15. That's our passage of study today. Once I read it, I'll pray one more time, and then we'll begin to look at it verse by verse. Amen? You guys good to go? We ready? Hopefully you got your note writing hand ready or your picture perfect memory. I don't have one of those, but whatever it is that you got, let's get ready. Let's read it together. It's 6, 8 to 15. And Stephen, here he is, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, and it says they rose up and disputed with Stephen, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false 
witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place uh, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then 15, our last verse, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Father, as we begin to study your word, God, we're going to need your help. Uh, we are feeble people who have sh- very short attention spans and uh, who have a natural tendency uh, for sin. And, uh, and I am one of them, maybe the chief of sinners in this room, Lord. And uh, we desperately need your help during this time. We need for you to reveal your truth and to open our hearts and minds to it. Um, our ears tend to be plugged from the things of God, and we need you to unplug them at this moment, Lord. God, I pray that we would not be just hearers of your word, but doers, as James said. Apply these truths to our lives and change us forever through them, Lord, that we may be more holistic Christians who uh, are more devoted to you and more concerned about your glory than our own lives. Help us with that today, Jesus. We invite you to come fill this place as you already have. Continue to minister to each one of us in your own way. Thank you, Christ, for this great time of study. Keep our hearts and minds on you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. All right, let's begin with eight. Here's where the rubber meets the road, guys. Eight says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. I stated it earlier, but Stephen was a man of immense character. Back in verse 3, Peter stated that a deacon had to have a good godly reputation and be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Stephen was selected because he fit the bill. In fact, he was the first to be selected from a group of what may have been thousands, maybe even tens of thousands being the first man chosen to be a deacon from a group like that demonstrates his incredible godly character. In verse 5, Luke wrote that Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The faith of Stephen is vividly seen in chapter 7, which is what we will begin to engage in the weeks to come. In verses 1 to 51, pretty much his entire sermon there, Stephen testified to how he believed faith, how he believed that God is the sovereign ruler over history and over his own life. In verse 51, a little later in verse 51, he testified to his belief in the Holy Spirit. In verse 52, Stephen testified to how he believed that Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. In verses 55 to 56, he testified to how he believed that Jesus had been resurrected and was seated at the right hand of the Father. In verses 54 to 60, his faith in the Lord allowed him to face death calmly. In verse 59, Stephen, by faith, called out for the Lord to receive his spirit while the religious leaders were stoning him to death. All of these things that I've mentioned here, and there's, I'm certainly sure there's more, but all of these things that I've mentioned are demonstrations of Stephen's incredible faith, the incredible faith that he possessed. Sadly, Many Christians today could not be described as full of faith. Like the father of the demon-possessed boy uh, who was healed by Jesus, their cry is, I do believe in you, Lord, but help my unbelief. While trusting God with their eternal destiny, they find it difficult to trust Him with the concerns of everyday life. Stephen, however, was not like that. 
He trusted God fully and concentrated on doing what God wanted him to do, and he gladly left the consequences by faith in God's hands. Not only was Stephen full of faith, but also of the Holy Spirit. This is the privilege of every believer. But to be full of faith is to trust God. To be full of the Spirit is to obey fully God's will. Stephen believed God and submitted to the leading of the empowering, purifying Holy Spirit. Those two qualities epitomize the strength of the Christian life. Now in verse 8, the passage that we're studying now, Luke introduces us to two more things that made up Stephen's character. He was what? Full of grace and power. Because Stephen trusted God and walked in the fullness of the Spirit, he was given the grace to face persecution, even death. Neither fear nor hatred controlled him, only trust and submission. He could be gracious even to the point of death because of his confident trust in God and resignation to the divine purpose. Having committed himself fully into God's hands, he was willing to endure anything in the strength of enabling grace. God's grace also flowed out of his life to others. Perhaps that was one reason why the church chose him to minister to widows as a deacon. Stephen was even gracious towards his executioners, praying for their forgiveness as their stones crushed out his life. The only way that a believer can live like Stephen is by dying to his or her own sinful self. People who are too busy looking out for their own interests will have little time or inclination to abandon themselves and experience the grace Stephen experienced. Finally, Stephen was full of power. That was the direct result of his being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit came, He would bring power Dunamis power. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came and filled 120 Christians with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now Stephen may have been a part of that original group. We don't know, but I suspect that he was probably saved at Pentecost. But when he got saved, the Holy Spirit indwelt him and what? Filled him with power. The great fruit that came from this power was that he what? He, it says in verse 8 that he performed great wonders and signs among the people. This suggests that Stephen was far more than simply a deacon. Instead, his deeds of power show his close link to the apostles. Interestingly, and I don't know if you guys knew this, I certainly did not before studying, but interestingly, only the apostles... And Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas had the kind of power necessary to perform miracles. According to the New Testament, the apostles, Stephen, um, Barnabas, and Philip were the only ones that performed any miracles, according to the New Testament. I think that we tend to believe and think that all kinds of people were doing miracles and all kinds of things were happening. No, it was a select few. It was the apostolic group, if you will, that were doing those things. Just do a study of the New Testament. You'll see for yourself. So Stephen was a tremendous, tremendous brother in Christ who had impeccable character. He had an excellent reputation as a godly man. He was full. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace and full of divine power. A man like this is very dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. He is a weapon in the hands of the Lord whom God can use to strike deadly blows against the principalities and the ruler of the air 
whom God can use to destroy strongholds, arguments, and lofty positions that are raised against the knowledge of God. A man like this is a dangerous man to the devil. I wish we were all that way. Including myself. Oh, at times, that's who I am. I'm a Stephen. Most of the time, I'm a Peter. I'm all over the place. Aren't we all that way? Oh, this Stephen guy was quite the man of God. Quite the man of God. Look at 9 with me. Nine says, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from uh, Cilicia or Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. The synagogue was Stephen's preferred place to preach the gospel. Jerusalem had many at this time, about 480. Many of them were Hellenistic. Many of them were filled with Jews who spoke Greek. Jews had, who had been descended from Roman provinces throughout all of Mesopotamia and beyond. 480 of them, many of them were Hellenistic. Now Stephen loved, and this is great, Stephen loved to engage other Hellenists on their own turf with the message of Jesus. Amazing. Luke tells us that men from three Hellenistic synagogues rose up and disputed with Stephen. The synagogues that Luke listed are, and I've mentioned them, the Freedmen Synagogue, the Cyrenian and Alexandrian Synagogue, the uh, Cilicia and Asian Synagogue. All three were in Jerusalem, and there were probably more of those types. Um, all three were Hellenistic. Uh, and all three were visited by Stephen. I would say probably pretty regularly. When he wasn't ministering to widows and fulfilling his deacon duties, he was out preaching the gospel. He was out challenging his own kind, the Hellenists, in their own places of worship. Incredible. <clears throat> when Stephen went to these synagogues, he preached just as Peter had preached at Solomon's portico. He made a compelling cry, a case for Christ through careful exposition of the Old Testament. He preached about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He boldly pointed out how Israel had failed to receive their Messiah and how they had murdered him. There's no reason to believe that he did not call for his hearers to repent of their sin Trust in Christ and be baptized as well. Those are the things that Peter did at Solomon's portico. This man had learned the gospel from Peter, how to preach the gospel from Peter and the apostles. Let's talk about these synagogues a little bit more in more detail for a moment. The Freedmen Synagogue was founded in Jerusalem by the Jewish slaves that had been captured and taken to Rome by Pompey in 63 B.C. Upon their release, they returned to Jerusalem and founded their own synagogue, Synagogue of the Freedmen. Their descendants were running that synagogue or those Freedmen-type uh, synagogues during the time of Stephen. That generation had passed on and it had been handed over to uh, the other descendants. Cyrenian and Alexandrian synagogue. Uh, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians were from two major cities in North Africa. Cyrene, or Cyrene, was the hometown of the man who carried Jesus' cross to Golgotha when the Lord could not continue because of how badly he'd been beaten. His name was Simon. You remember that in the Gospel account where this guy comes in and carries the cross the rest of the way? Well, he was from Cyrene. Alexandria was another major city in that area. Both uh, Cyrene and Alexandria had large Jewish populations and people from both communities or cities joined and established synagogues in Jerusalem. 
And this makes total sense because Jerusalem was the meeting place where the temple was where they would come four times a year for major events. And so if you were going to come and stay there for a week or two at a time, you'd want a house of worship to worship in during that time. So you'd establish little synagogues that were like your own little church. And then you would go together to the temple for its services. Um, Cilicia and Asia were Roman provinces in Asia Minor. People from both of those places also established synagogues in Jerusalem. Saul, <laughs> Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, used to live in Tarsus, which is located in Cilicia. As a Hellenist from Cilicia, Saul may have attended this particular synagogue in Jerusalem on a regular basis. Uh, if that is true... Uh, we know that Stephen went there and preached the gospel. If it is true that Saul attended that synagogue, and I think there's reason to believe so, his first exposure to the gospel may have come through Stephen's preaching. Isn't that interesting? Saul may have heard the gospel presented for the first time through this man, Stephen, that we're studying. Saul also could have been one of the men who rose up and disputed Stephen when Stephen came to preach. There is also reason to believe that Saul was present at the Sanhedrin during Stephen's trial because Acts 8.1 says that he was present at his execution. And if you read ahead in Acts, you will see that there was no time period between the trial of Stephen and the execution of Stephen. Right in the middle of the trial, the religious leaders, foaming at the mouth, rushed Stephen and drug him outside the city gates and stoned him to death. And the text says that Saul was there giving approval. It could be that Saul knew Stephen because Stephen visited his synagogue. It could be that Stephen first exposed Saul to the gospel when he came to that synagogue and preached. It could be that Saul was one of the men who rose up and disputed with Stephen. I believe he did. It could be that Saul was present at Stephen's trial. Why? Because he was present at his execution. There was no time in between them. That's pretty incredible when you think about it, that the man who brought the gospel to the rest of the world, the Roman world, which extended out to us, more than likely was exposed to Stephen and the gospel through him and all that. Now you can see how Stephen is a precursor in the evangelistic movement uh, to the rest of the world. He was a precursor. He was that middleman that began that. It's incredibly fascinating and amazing. I believe it to be true. What does disputed mean in the text? Disputed is translated suzeteo in Greek, and it means to engage in formal debate. The synagogue men who rose up and disputed with Stephen did not create a scene by openly quarreling or arguing with him. That's not what they did. They didn't interrupt him when he was preaching and try to debate him right on the spot in front of those who were attending. No, 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 that's not what the text says. It would appear that what they did was they asked him to meet at a later date and time. And then they did that and they sat and discussed his teachings and their views. Now Luke doesn't give us any details or clue us in on the subject matter, but Stephen's sermon in chapter 7 may perhaps clue us in on what they talked about. We'll get there in the coming weeks. What happened next? Look at 10. It says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Their human reasoning was no match for Stephen's God-given wisdom. The phrase, the spirit with which he was speaking, probably does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but to the emotion, energy, zeal, sincerity, and fervency with which Stephen spoke. Stephen spoke the gospel with massive, massive conviction. Unshakable conviction. He dominated with his God-given words. This guy was a tremendous, tremendous orator. He had incredible zeal, passion, energy, excitement, emotion, and fervency behind his gospel presentation, just as we should. Does the gospel no longer compel us to be passionate and excited 
I tell you what, when I think about the cross and I think about the resurrection, I get giddy. I want to tell people about it. Sometimes I blow them right off. You know, if they had a yarmulke on their head, if they were Jewish, I'd blow it right off of them. I blow them right out of the... Sometimes I don't do it right, I blow them away. But shouldn't we proclaim the gospel with passion and zeal? Oh, yeah, and by the way, Jesus died for your sins. Yeah. Okay, let's go get a sandwich. Really? Oh, just take a little inventory of what he's done and accomplished. Shouldn't that produce great passion and love for him and zeal for his truth and for what he's accomplished? Wow, man. Stephen had two requirements necessary for effective public speaking and triumphing in debate. What did he have? He had unarguable truth and potent delivery. Having the truth is amazing. Delivering it in a limp-wristed fashion is worthless. Delivering it with zeal and passion and fervency and fire and great love and great compassion towards your hearers, that's the way to do it. Stephen possessed these qualities. The impact of those two things was more than those Hellenists those synagogue men could handle way more. They were outmatched. They could not roll with this man on fire, this godly man. Look at what happened next. 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Oh, Lord, he called the cops. That's not in there. I added it. Losing to Stephen really ticked these guys off. But losing the debate was only part of it. The real reason for rejecting Stephen, for getting fired up, for trying to instigate trouble against him and his message wasn't because they just lost the debate. It was because they lost, they loved their sin. They loved their self-righteousness. They loved their idolatry. That is the reason why people get upset at the gospel. That is the true reason why. Well, they lost the debate and that ticked them off, but they were angry because this man challenged them on their sin, self-righteousness, and idolatry. These men were full of religious pride. They believed that their path was right. And then Stephen showed up in their synagogues and preached against their beliefs. Find a local kingdom hall or Mormon temple. Go into it during a worship service. Open up your Bible and proceed to demolish their theological positions and make sure you point them to the biblical Jesus. Then hang around afterwards and debate and debunk their leaders. Do you think the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons would be a little ticked off? Yes, they would. This is essentially what Stephen did. He went right into their places of worship and disrupted their worship. He went in and brought the gospel, which is an absolute disruption to natural life. And it infuriated these men. Go into a Mormon temple and pull that off. I don't, you'd probably get hit with a chair. Think about this. This is what he did. This is the kind of man that he was. Fearless. Bold. And why? Because he wanted to prove them wrong? No! Because he loved his countrymen and wanted to see them saved and sanctified. That's why he did it. That's deep love, friends. That's deep love for your people. Paul said he would forsake his faith for the sake of his countrymen. That's how much he loved his countrymen and wanted them to know the gospel. Stephen went into these places. He stirred the hornet's nest. Boy, these men could not stand against him in debate, but the real reason for their anger and hostility was spiritual pride. That's the bottom line. These guys knew that they could not beat Stephen in debate. He made them look foolish because the truth he spoke prevailed against their own foolish notions and philosophies of religion. Knowing that they could not beat him, they then sought to get rid of him. Verse 11 says that they instigated, which really translates recruited and coached, 
false witnesses to accuse Stephen. This was the same tactic used against Jesus at his trial. Even the trumped-up charges of blasphemy were like those against his Lord. The false witnesses accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. This was a very serious charge that brought with it the death penalty. Blasphemers were executed. Right off the bat, we can see that the intent of these synagogue men was to have Stephen put to death. This is how fervently angry they were with him against the Lord's truth. They wanted him put to death, not jailed or exiled. They wanted him dead. So they concocted a scheme to allege him of the most serious of all religious crimes in Judaism, blasphemy, which would certainly end in death. This is nothing more than the devil trying to squash and extinguish the truth of God. That's what this is. The fact that you're sitting here as a believer loving Jesus and reading his Bible shows that the devil did not succeed. The blood of Stephen was spilt, sure, but that blood was the seed of great evangelism and church growth. This was a serious charge that they made. They wanted him dead. Notice how they said that Stephen's blasphemies were against Moses and God, the two highest reigning officials in Judaism, if you will. Moses was exalted, I would say, above God in many Jewish circles. Blasphemies against Moses were denunciations against the law. Speaking against the law's ability to save was blasphemous. The Jews believed that strict obedience to the law resulted in salvation. When a person challenged that belief, like Stephen, when they called them on it, they called them, those preachers, those Christian preachers, blasphemers against Moses. But in reality, there's nothing in the Bible or in the Torah, which is the Jewish Bible, that says that obedience to the law saves. On the contrary, those scriptures state repeatedly that obedience to the law is the result of saving faith in the promised Messiah. It is faith that produces salvation and obedience rather than obedience that produces faith and salvation. The Jews had it all backwards. They still have it backwards. They believe that through obedience they can earn their way into heaven. And that is the common belief of all religions and most people in this nation. And yet Christianity is the opposite. There are 10,000 religions in the world and they all say the same thing. Do, do, do and God will be pleased. Christianity says you cannot do. Christ did for you what you could never do. It's the antithesis of all world religions and philosophies. Jesus came down and obeyed the law perfectly because we could never do so. Certainly, many of us have never committed adultery in a physical sense, but if we've lusted after a woman, we've broken a commandment. If we've lusted after a man, if we've lied... It's not hard to break the commandments. I'm breaking them in my sleep when I'm dreaming. And I don't know if I have any control over that. You ever wake up going, why in the heck did I dream about that? I just killed a man. But they never die. They always float, you know. Have you ever noticed that? They come back. And then I wake up going, praise God, it was a dream because I thought I was going to prison. <laughs> right? I mean, we dream the weirdest. We can't even control our dreams. We're sinning in our dreams. Oh, he came and he obeyed the law with perfection and precision. Precision. That's French. Precision. He fulfilled it perfectly. He did what we could never do. And then he went to the cross and bore all of our sinful iniquities and unrighteousness. He, 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 he died a bloody, shameful death in our place, absorbing the wrath of God against our sin. He did what we could never do. He was buried, and in three days He rose, conquering death and Satan. 
Jesus imputes his perfect righteousness to those who have faith. He makes them perfect with his own righteousness. He transfers his righteousness to your account. And your account, apart from Christ, is empty and bankrupt. If it's filled with anything, it's filled with God's wrath because you're a sinner. And he removes that and puts his own righteousness on you. Why? So that you may be justified by God. You've been made right through the righteousness, the clothed righteousness of Christ. You're adopted as a son or daughter because of what he did. And what is required to receive these wonderful things, this wonderful salvation of Christ? Repentance and faith, not obedience to the law. He will never be obedience to the law. Justification by faith is one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith, and it is one of the most attacked. The synagogue men opposed Stephen for preaching that doctrine because they believed in their hearts they had to work, 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 earn, earn, earn. And when somebody comes in and says, no, rest in the fulfilled, completed work of Jesus Christ. He said it is finished. Rest in it. That's what you must do. Do not try to earn rest. They're used to working. So what do they do? They get angry. They get frustrated. They get filled with religious pride and hostility. And they want to rid themselves of that culprit who's speaking such blasphemous things. How dare he challenge what we've been doing for a thousand years? It is the same today with people. When you tell them that the work is done in Christ, my friends, cease your striving, repent, and believe. But how will I get to heaven? I must perform. You could never perform, my friend. Never. You cannot, no matter what, meet God's qualifications for righteousness and holiness. Only the perfect Son of God could do it. And He has done it for sinners. What a miracle that is. God, may we believe that. May we rest in that. One of the reasons why we take communion every week to remind us of that. Christ did the work. I don't have to try. I don't have to do a little good during the week and then fail and then feel miserable. I just have to rest in Christ. It's a done work. That is the message that Stephen preached. That is the message that Jesus preached. That is the message that Peter preached. That is the message that the apostles preached. That is the message that Paul preached later on. That is the Christian message. And what did they do? They called him a blasphemer. What is blasphemy against God? Blasphemy against God would have been denunciations against the temple The Jews believed that the temple was God's sacred home on earth, and for a season it was. But when Jesus died on the cross, we sang it earlier, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, and that signified that God was no longer present there. It was the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was that no one could go into, but the high priest, that veil just ripped and shattered, fell to the ground, symbolizing, I'm not there anymore. That is what happened, but they still believed that He was there. And yet, through Christ, God established a new earthly dwelling place which is in the hearts of His people, 1 Corinthians 6.19. But the religious leaders, these synagogue men, all these Jews, all these other folks, they kept the temple running while believing that God was still present and pleased with them. In reality, the temple was nothing more than a house of idolatry. Jesus pointed that out. He even cleared the temple, attempted to, of its idolatry a couple of times. Gave the sacred place some rest from sinful men is what Jesus did. The temple was a house of iniquity. The temple had become a house of tremendous idolatry and it was the Ark of the Covenant that became their god The Ark of the Covenant was that box back in the back, and yes, at a time God used it, but it was never intended to be worshipped, but it housed the Ten Commandments back in that holiest of holies, and that's what they worshipped was those tablets of stone that were in there. That's our God. We've got to do those things, and God will be pleased with us. 
And so when you speak against the temple and say, the temple is nothing more than clay, mortar, and stones, God has left that place. He is judging Israel. When you challenge the sanctity of the temple, they say, blasphemy against God because that's his house. Blasphemy against the temple. That's what they did. That's what they tried to say that Stephen was guilty of. These are the allegations that the false witnesses were about to bring against Stephen before the council. Look at 12. Twelve says, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Why not get more people ticked off and involved? That could make your case look more legitimate, right? That's exactly what the synagogue men and false witnesses did. They knew that the common folks were zealous for the law and Moses and for the temple and for God, so they took their deception to the streets and got all kinds of folks twisted up, got them into an uproar. Incredibly, the fear of the people that forced the authorities to arrest the apostles without violence in chapter 5, verse 26, had dissipated. And those same people who basically were defending in some way, shape, or form the apostles and their message, those same people now had turned violently against Stephen. Oh, sure, Stephen was popular when he healed the sick and performed signs and wonders, but like the fickle crowd that turned on Jesus right after hailing him as the Messiah, these people were swayed to change their minds and attack the preacher. That's basically what's happened. Just moments before, these people were like, we love the apostles. And now look, let's kill one of them. That's how quickly they turned on Jesus. Within one week, the Passover week, they went from hailing him as the Messiah to yelling, give us Barabbas and crucify that guy. Oh, we're so fickle. We're all over the place. Verse 12 says that some of the members of the Sanhedrin, elders and scribes, got swept or sucked into the tornado of deception and hostility. Oh, they got in there and started chanting and marching along with the other guys and the synagogue men and the common folks. They got all twisted up in there. Heck, they were already twisted up. They just joined in the group. It says that they, this group here, and I think it was a bit of a little bit of a tumult, it says that they brought Stephen before the council. Now, I doubt that the council, the entire council, was present and ready to receive the case. So it could be that this massive group was Stephen in the middle and Lord only knows how he was being insulted and maybe whatever. I mean, it wasn't good, but I think they waited outside of the Hall of Hewn Stone until all the members could be, you know, summoned and gathered. Once they went inside, once the Sanhedrin, again, 71 members, highest religious order in the land. These guys were the creme de la creme, man. These guys were the big-time leaders that made these incredible decisions and guided Israel and oversaw the temple. Once these 71 members were all together in the Sanhedrin, they went inside. This tumult pushed their way inside and then pushed Stephen to the center and then lined up these false witnesses. Sounds very similar to what happened to the Lord at Gethsemane and right after. Look at 13. It says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. F.F. F. Bruce, a brilliant preacher and scholar, wrote that the false witnesses didn't put words into Stephen's mouth. They didn't have to really fabricate the things that he said. What they did was they just misrepresented what he actually said. In other words, they took his teachings and words and twisted them up, kind of like how political opponents do about this time of the year every four years, right? You've seen these ads now where it's like, oh, he said this. And then, yeah, he did say that, but there was a context behind it, so now he looks like a moron over here. Well, that's what they did. They just took his teachings and words and they jumbled them together and twisted them and then ripped them from context and and just proceeded to claim that he had said these things. 
F.F. Bruce is right. They didn't have to lie. They just had to manipulate his words. Again, their claim would be that Stephen had blasphemed against the temple, which represented God, and the law, which represented Moses. That is what they cried out before the Sanhedrin in our verse. Now, in verse 14, they displayed their contempt for the Lord by saying, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was really, I've never been there. I don't know what it was like back in this day, but by all accounts, it was a, I don't know, maybe a dumpy little hole-in-the-wall town that was out in the middle of nowhere on a crossroads to nowhere, and it was a Roman uh, place where they kept garrisons, and, and the people just absolutely despised it. Just think in your mind a town that you've been to, and you went, why does this town exist? That was Nazareth. I'm thinking Erlemart. Every time I go to Disneyland, I pass this town called Erlemart. I hope nobody was born there. If you were, I'll pray for you. But you drive through that thing, and you look at it, and it's just like, good night. There's people there that need Jesus, I would imagine, but, well, of course. But it's like, I mean, this was, you know, this was an unappealing town, I guess. And the common thought and common belief amongst the people was that nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. Saying Jesus of Nazareth was saying the equivalent to saying Jesus of nothing good. And that is what they claimed. They claimed that Stephen boasted about how Jesus of nothing good would destroy this place, and they were speaking of the temple, the Hall of Hewn Stone. They were on the temple grounds. Jesus is going to destroy this whole place. That's what they were talking about. But what they were doing was they were totally, totally twisting Jesus' words, because he had said something similar, and Stephen's words. They were twisting it up. Jesus never boasted about destroying the temple, and neither did Stephen. Jesus said to his adversaries, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was speaking about his own physical body. He was talking about his own body. Crucify me and kill me, and I will raise it up in three days. That's what Jesus taught. That's what that scripture that we've all looked at and went, hmm, that's what it means. But man, they, hurt, they, they took this thing and they twisted these words and they, and they made it sound like, oh, Stephen believes in what Jesus said about destroying this physical temple and then rebuilding it in three days. That's what they're doing. They're twisting up Jesus's and Stephen's words. Now, since that false accusation succeeded in getting Jesus condemned, obviously we know it was God's plan for him to go to the cross, but in their minds saying that he was going to destroy the temple, blaspheming against the temple like that, that ultimately got Jesus condemned. And so they're using that tactic here against Stephen. Oh, he said the same thing as him. It worked for Jesus. So kill him now. He did the same thing. Another charge calculated to enrage the people was that Stephen taught that Jesus would change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen, like the apostles, proclaimed Jesus as the fulfillment of all that the old covenant ritual typified. The new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah had superseded the old covenant. The moral law had not changed, but the ceremonial law was done away with. Reality had replaced ritual. Now, Stephen will show in his sermon in chapter 7 that he had enormous respect for Moses and the law. And yet their choice of words, however, made him out to be a revolutionary seeking to overturn the established divine order or law. They just wanted him to be a rebel. They wanted to paint him as a rebel that was rebelling against the temple and the law and all of these things. That's what they were seeking to do. Now, what was going on with Stephen while this life-threatening salvo was being launched against him in the presence of the highest religious court in the land. It's quite remarkable. Look at 15. It says, he was shaking in his boots. It says, he ran for the door and was captured by three centurions. No. And gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face 
of an angel. This scene strikes or presents a striking contrast. Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin of accused of being an evil blasphemer of the law, Moses of the temple, and of God. Yet when the members of the council looked at him, when they gazed at him, his face was like the face of an angel. At that moment, the religious leaders were not staring at the face of evil, but into the countenance of a man who radiated the holiness and glory of God. This was God's way of answering their false charges. God answered by putting his glory on Stephen's face. Throughout all history, throughout all of history, there has only been one other person to experience this, and that person was Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai to make a covenant with God's people through the law, his face shined, it radiated with the glory of God. The radiance of God's glory on Moses' face was the sign that God was well pleased with Moses, pleased with the law, and pleased with the covenant that he was bringing to his people. It is the same with Stephen. His countenance radiated with the glory of God. And that was the sign that God was pleased with him, with his message, with the gospel, and with the new covenant that Jesus had brought. Wow. The men were gnashing and snarling at him and lying and blaspheming him. And God's child this man was... And how does he respond? He sits there and he emits the beautiful, wondrous glory of God. That was a gift, a precious gift of God that God put his radiating glory on his face. A symbol and sign that I am pleased with this man. And what did they do? They gazed at him and they marveled. They must have figured that this guy would just be peeing his pants, man. This guy, are you kidding me? We're about to annihilate this guy. Listen to what they're saying. And look at him. Look at his countenance. I don't know about you, but my countenance would have been... Right? That tasted terrible. Stephen was more than the first martyr. His character is the kind of character that we should all seek to possess. Stephen's ministry to the Hellenists marked the beginning of God's campaign to bring the gospel to the entire Gentile world. Stephen's countenance was pretty cool too. We should all seek to radiate the glory of God through our words and deeds. May His face shine upon us and from us. I have some thoughts for us in closing. The men who rose up against Stephen believed that if they stamped him and his teachings out, that their problem would go away. People of Israel and the religious leaders believed the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. If we just kill him, that'll get rid of his words and his teachings, and we can continue. But what these synagogue men didn't realize was that Stephen didn't speak his own words. Stephen spoke the word of God, the gospel. The Bible says in Isaiah 46 to 8 and 1 Peter 1, 25, that the word of God endures forever and ever. There was nothing that those synagogue men could do to change, alter, or eliminate God's enduring truth. Nothing. We must understand that our own disbelief and disputings do not change, alter, or eliminate God's enduring truth. You can reject that Africa is a continent and geographical location. You can dispute it, but your disbelief and disputing will not alter or change reality. 
Africa remains regardless of your personal beliefs. It is the same with God's truth. When little children cover their eyes and faces with their hands, they think that you can't see them. Well, when you cover your ears, eyes, and face, and you bury your head in the sand, and you divert your thinking, and you keep yourself busy with things to do, when you do all of those things, none of those things will change, alter, or eliminate God's truth. Why? Because it endures forever and ever. You can embrace other belief systems, Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Atheism, Judaism, or any other ism, and yet none of those things will change, alter, or eliminate God's truth. Why? Because it endures forever. It doesn't matter what you do, or what you believe, or what you think. It doesn't matter. You can continue to reject that does not Change the truth. Your disbelief and disputing will never alter, affect, or eliminate the reality of God's truth. Don't be a fool by thinking that you somehow have the ability to cancel, cancel out or override God's truth. Don't be a fool by believing the postmodern lie that your own individualistic beliefs, no matter what they are, equate to truth because truth is completely subjective. That kind of thinking results in judgment, hell, and damnation. Your personal beliefs do not change anything. They will not affect God's truth. Don't be a fool by believing that you are somehow special and will therefore be treated in a special way by God. The truth is, you're just like the rest of us in here and the rest of the people in this world. You're a sinner who needs a Savior, who needs a rescuer. That's reality, friends. Oh, but but you don't understand. I'm a good person I do a lot of good things and they outweigh the bad. I'm special. Therefore, God will treat me in a special way. He has to. That's the law of the universe. Every good and bad thing that you do, every good and bad deed will be used against you in the court of his law, condemning you unto everlasting destruction. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. This whole world is filled with them. We need a rescuer. The Bible says in Romans 1.16 that the message Stephen preached, the gospel is the power to save, is God's power unto salvation. And then in John 12.48 it says that the gospel will be the rule of law that is used against those who disbelieved On the last day. Friends, the gospel has the powers to save and to judge, convict, and condemn unrepented sinners unto everlasting damnation. In light of the fact that you cannot change, alter, or eliminate God's truth, and that you're a sinner, an enemy of God, who deserves His wrath and judgment. Were you, would you literally, think about this, prefer to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ or condemned to everlasting punishment by it? If you're not in Christ, then you have an important decision to make, don't you? Don't believe the lies of this world that you can just cancel out God's truth with your own belief or some other religion or whatever it is. The truth endures and will prevail and will be used as your judge. The good news is the Bible says that if you repent of your sin... Place your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. You shall be saved. I bid you, dear friend, 
do not tarry. Pray to the Lord at this very moment. Bring your sins before his throne of grace. Ask him to cleanse you with his purifying blood. Ask him to save you. Ask him to be your Lord, Savior, and Master. Father, thank you for the gospel. Apart from it, we all stand condemned, John 3.17. Our condemnation, our natural condemnation will result in everlasting condemnation according to the judge and rule of your word, God. May those among us who do not know you yet repent this very moment, Christ. There may be some here who have not turned from their sin and come to you, Jesus. We live in a time of great grace where the gospel is proclaimed, but there is a time coming where judgment will come, where you will return and bring war. Today is the day of salvation. May we believe that and repent of our sin and trust in you, Christ, in your finished work, your life, your death, your burial, and your glorious resurrection. It gives us life, the hope of glory. Thank you, Christ. And Jesus, as we enter into this time of communion, God, I, I pray that it would be a sweet time, Jesus, where the saints would reflect upon your finished work, miraculous things that you have done in our steed. Oh, may our hope be in you, Christ, and you alone not in our own merit or works or any of those things, but in you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this time and for these folks who have come. Bless them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen.